Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. When wildfire season ends, it does so almost instantly for wildland firefighters. It's so hard to go from everything to nothing all at once. On today's show, we'll hear how the end of the season can amplify mental health struggles. And we'll get perspective on challenges the field of early childhood education is facing. That's just ahead after Colorado Headlines. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. Among the countless industries that were hit hard by the COVID-19 pandemic, early childhood education faced some unique challenges. Many preschools and daycares in Colorado were forced to shut down for weeks or months during the pandemic's earlier days. While most of them are back to offering in-person learning, many facilities still face major staffing shortages. People have left the field due to issues ranging from low wages to stress that were there before but exacerbated by the pandemic. And the impact of all this is that now it's harder and more expensive for many working parents to find spots for their young children. To learn more about this, we reached out to three people in early childhood education who have been navigating the pandemic since last year and working towards solutions for the industry. Scott Bright is the owner of ABC Child Development Centers and Bright School Age Centers in Greeley. Jennifer Steedron is the executive director of Early Milestones Colorado. Luke Affman is a former Denver preschool teacher who left early childhood education to be a correctional officer. They spoke with my colleague, Henry Zimmerman. Scott, tell us about the history of ABC Child Development Centers and Bright School Age Centers. Um, I understand that those are sort of family businesses? It is a family business. Um, I am the third generation owner. We are in our 51st year of existence. Grew from one child care center of a capacity of about 30 up to 25 different licensed centers, including school age programs that serve kids and families before and after school, as well as uh, some dedicated preschool centers and also several child care centers in Weld County. Well, can you give us an idea of how your various programs and sort of staffing levels and other things have changed in the, uh, I guess, almost two years of the pandemic? Definitely been a challenge. We never stopped serving families completely. We were always open at at least a few of our centers all the way through. Again, we we started with about 25 centers in February of 2020 and then consolidated down to about 10% of the capacity, uh, both children and centers, and have slowly grown back to about 80% of where we were prior to the pandemic. Tell us a little bit more about uh, what staffing has looked like during the pandemic specifically. Is Are you still going through hiring issues or is that getting better along with some of these other things you mentioned? It's definitely been a challenge. As you know, the current economic environment has made it much more conducive for people to look in different directions for employment. So now we're not just competing with other childcare or early childhood education entities. We're competing with places like Amazon and McDonald's and Walmart for employees. 
I want to take the chance to turn to Luke Affman. Uh, Luke, I understand that you recently left your job as a preschool teacher in Denver after a number of years to become a corrections officer. Um, and so before we get into why you made that change, tell us a little bit about your history with ECE. How did you get involved and what did you like about working uh, in this industry? Well, I went to school for elementary education and um, I got a license out of state moved to Colorado, came back to Colorado after school. And um, <clears throat> one of the easiest ways to get into education at that point was to get a job with the Children's Center. So I kind of did that, not really expecting to enjoy it as much as I did. And uh, the age group really spoke to me. The way that I was able to interact with them really, it meant a lot to me. And it kind of grew on me over the course of the last six years, which is how long I did it for it kind of turned into more of a labor labor of love than I was expecting. Interesting. Can you tell us more about that? What sort of changed for you? Well, there, uh, there was a perception that it wasn't as academically minded, I guess, ahead of time. And then I got into it and the center I was with was a really good place to be. And there's a lot of thought that goes into how you interact with the kids and how best to get them to sort of, you know, start their journey on exploring the world and exploring themselves. There, there were a lot of good role models at the place in terms of teachers who had been around longer. It was a really good experience for personal growth for myself and also for professional growth. And what influenced you to make the ultimate choice to leave? Sadly, it is, it kind of dovetails with what Scott was saying. It is mainly a decision for money and just keeping up with the raising cost of living in this area, you hit kind of a, a hard ceiling as a preschool teacher, and there's not a lot of room for financial growth. And I was even at the point where I was, you know, qualified and looking around at assistant director positions, which is kind of the next step up from, from being an uh, experienced preschool teacher. And I was finding some of those that paid actually worse than what I was making at the time with comparable or slightly worse benefits. So it was a real tough decision, but I did kind of have to make the the long-term plan to switch into something that has more room for growth. Well, Jennifer, I'd like to turn to you now. As a part of your work with Early Milestones Colorado, um, you've been working to find solutions and help for some of these issues uh, the ECE industry is facing. Um, but first, I'm curious, what do you make of what we heard from Scott and Luke? Does any of that sound familiar to you? Well, it's two really unfortunate stories and perspectives and um, sadly I think quite representative of what's going on not just in um, not just in parts of Colorado but in all of Colorado and frankly in the rest of the nation as well so um, we just know uh, this is a difficult industry to be in and um, to make work from a small business perspective there's a lot of reasons why the workforce is low paid, um, even though uh, families obviously value their early childhood educators really, really dearly because of how important they are to young children. But it's just hard to make it work. And, and once COVID hit, it just got a lot harder. Mm. Well, can you expand on some of that pay stuff that you were talking about? How did that get worse in the pandemic? Pay is hard overall in this industry because um, unlike the K-12 education system, even though uh, teachers really are 
educators and children are developing and learning at an incredible rate in their youngest years. There isn't any significant set of subsidies to help make a business work. So you need really good staff. You need a ratio of staff to children that is low so that teachers can really attend to their young charges. The more staff you need, the more expensive it is to actually afford to operate uh, a child care early learning center. And of course, most parents of young children are early in their careers, so they can't cover what it costs to do that. And then once COVID hit, we had a significant change in health and safety requirements, which is um, really important. Obviously, we want to keep our children safe and we want to keep our teachers safe. Um, but at the same time, there are lots of other less stressful jobs out there. And as we all know, um, a lot of competition right now for a workforce. So uh, it just seems that there are many, many other types of businesses that pay more and um, likely offer less challenges, less stress overall. Well, as I understand, there's going to be some federal stimulus money coming into Colorado's early childhood education facilities. Um, do you know much about that? Do we know how much we're expecting as a state and where it's going to go? Yep. It, it's really terrific news uh, for the field. I mean, uh, we know um, the workforce has declined by about 23 percent. And we know uh, that about 10% of our businesses, somewhere between 7 and 10%, have been closed during this time. And um, our Office of Early Childhood understands we're in crisis. So um, pretty soon, they'll be releasing almost $50 million in grants for workforce retention and then a host of support for other strategies that will allow um, for higher salaries, for options for health care and other types of benefits, for um, subsidized education in order to help those that want to, um, to obtain, say, a bachelor's degree or even move into um, management and get the skills for that, um, apprenticeship programs, uh, a really a large array of um, different strategies to hire the workforce and keep the workforce. Well, Scott, let me quickly ask you, I'm wondering if you've maybe heard any of that news yet or if you've gotten word yet about perhaps how much might be coming your way? So we're absolutely anxious to, to see those funds uh, show up. I know that they've been waiting the wings uh, for disbursement for quite some time now. Um, and anxious to see that that hit the ground and 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 get running on that. Um, the challenge with it is uh, a lot of these funds are one-time funds, um, so essentially they're not sustainable over the long period. Um, I I can't wait to uh, see the look on our staff's face when we're able to uh, bump their pay a little bit with these funds. Uh, but I'm also worried about the sunset of that program, and and in nine or ten months when it runs out. Um, you know, what do we do then? Do we end up losing some staff at that point? So um, in, in my mind, our preschool, our childcare staff have such a, a massive impact, massive positive impact on kids uh, in those first five years. I feel like they ought to be paid <laughs> the highest wages. Um, the problem is uh, you have a limited 
amount of funds to work with and, and it spreads pretty thin when uh, you have to comply with all the different childcare licensing pieces. Um, and, and those are safety measures that are in place. And I fully agree with those. Um, you just have to do the simple math to make it work uh, to pay the staff. So I really do feel that um, the early childhood industry is a great first step into the education world. Um, I believe that it's not the last step uh, that our staff will take, but I feel like it's a great step and it, and it provides a great amount of fulfillment for our staff to learn uh, how, what a positive impact they make on kids on a daily basis. And has ABC changed anything like wages or, or benefits or hours to attract more staff? It's an interesting concept because uh, as soon as I increase wages uh, just by simple math, um, that money has to come from somewhere. And the only place, uh, we do have many government funded programs at ABC, um, but the only place where the, the price tag of the service is negotiable or changeable in, in reaction to um, external market factors is that private pay tuition. So the only way that I can give a uh, pay increase to our staff is by to in hand also have it, uh, an increase in rates for our families. And so it's a really tough balancing act that our uh, management team goes through every year is to, to try to figure out how to set that private pay uh, tuition rate in a way that we can afford to give our staff increases. Um, most recently to keep staff from uh, leaving the profession and heading to you know other fields um, other competing fields that are non-early childhood, we have had to do a uh, an off-season or a mid-year rate increase. And uh, that will have to be passed on to our private pay families. Um, those contracts we have with uh, government entities, whether it be the city or the county or the state or uh, the feds, they do not increase their rates. It's not like I can go uh, bang on the door and say, hey, I need another dollar an hour for my staff. Otherwise, they're going to leave. Please pay me more on my government contract. Um, they don't respond uh, to that. Um, and so it, it, it's left to the, the private pay families to, to shoulder some of those burdens. That was the first part of our conversation with three folks in the field of early childhood education. Scott Bright, who owns several child development centers in northern Colorado. Jennifer Steedron, executive director of Early Milestones Colorado and Luke Affman, a former preschool teacher who left to become a correctional officer. We'll have more with them in just a moment after a short break. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Preschools and daycares across Colorado have been facing major staffing shortages and stress throughout the pandemic. We're speaking with three people in the industry about the present and future of early childhood education. Scott Bright is the owner of ABC Child Development Centers and Bright School Age Centers in Greeley. Jennifer Steedron is the executive director of Early Milestones Colorado. And Luke Affman is a former Denver preschool teacher who left the field of early childhood education to be a correctional officer. Well, Jennifer, I want to turn back to you. Something we heard from Scott there was about uh, the end of some of this financial uh, support that's coming. But I wanted to talk about something that is kind of on the horizon in the world of childhood education here in Colorado, and that's Proposition EE, Universal Pre-K. I'm wondering if you could tell us about the status of where Universal Pre-K is at in Colorado and how that might kind of affect the industry once it starts getting off the ground. 
Yes, well, um, the voters, uh, like you indicated, did pass Proposition EE in the, in the last set of elections and uh, universal pre-K therefore will be available to every child uh, the year before starting kindergarten and will be rolling out in, uh, in late summer of 2023. So uh, the state is gearing up by thinking about what sorts of requirements um, programs will have, what uh, the teaching uh, methods will look like, what sort of qualifications might be expected from teachers, where programs will be delivered, and of course, um, how much it will cost and how much they will pay uh, to uh, have programs uh, roll out universal pre-K. Um, we do know that we've got to be worried because our workforce is already threatened. We do have areas of the state that have incredibly few slots overall for young children, let alone for pre-K programs. And uh, we are starting to really dive into how providers are feeling and thinking about um, this upcoming universal program. Luke, it's been a minute since we've heard from you. I'm wondering what you think about the future of early childhood education and if you might ever consider returning. Yeah, so um, one of the plans is uh, with my current job, there is a, a form of early, early retirement that's on the table. And so once money for my own self is kind of taken care of, I'd love to come back. It's kind of, it, it's turned into, you know, my my first actual job that I loved. And uh, kind of going along with what the other two have said here, the only money currently that you can that you can increase in terms of money coming into a center comes from the parents. I've witnessed that from parents that I've talked to and that they don't really have a lot of money, you know, to add to that part of their budget. Um, and I was actually, my, my uh, center was in a relatively wealthy area of Denver and I was still hearing a lot of, you know, Oh, they're bumping, bumping tuition by 5% or, you know, 2% this year, whatever it is. And that was, you know, making parents turn away and search out other options. Um, and so the, the, the tug of war going on without a consistent government subsidy, like uh, Scott was mentioning, um, does really kind of make it difficult for centers to operate and maintain good staff. And particularly in my, my experience with the center, uh, young staff, there's a, there's a fair amount of older workers who are, you know, more, stable financially for whatever reason. And uh, um, there's a lot of young workers that are unfortunately unable to make it work. And so they've sought out, you know, anything from trades to working for Comcast to working to corrections. So do you think it's likely that you'll return? Are you optimistic that some of these solutions will come into play and sort of change the landscape enough for you to want to come back? Uh, sadly, no. Um, and one of the reasons for that is just the the amount of struggle that we saw over just the Denver public school pay increase that was really just a cost of living increase for teachers for the public schools that turned into a real hot button controversial issue. And it really should not have been um, just adding cost of living to teacher pay should be a given that shouldn't even be a conversation in my book. Um, and so seeing seeing controversy over something that was 
so basic in my eyes makes it really, it, it seems really bleak to me in terms of consistent government help uh, money wise that actually helps this, this specific sector of education. Scott Bright is the owner of ABC Child Development Centers and Bright School Age Centers in Greeley. Jennifer Stedron is the executive director of Early Milestones Colorado. And Luke Affman is a former Denver preschool teacher who recently left early childhood education to become a correctional officer. Scott, Jennifer, and Luke, thank you all so much for talking with us and and good luck. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thanks. It was a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Although Colorado was largely spared from major blazes this year, 2021 was another record-setting fire season in the West. For months at a time, wildland firefighters deal with intense, high-adrenaline work. Then, as winter approaches, fire season ends practically overnight. For some firefighters, that sudden silence can amplify mental health struggles. We're going to spend the next two days looking into the mental health and financial struggles these individuals face. Maggie Mullen has more for KUNC. And a note for listeners, this story mentions suicide. For almost 20 years, Luke Mayfield was a wildland firefighter. And for several seasons, he was part of a hotshot crew. Those highly trained groups take on difficult and dangerous assignments, often on the hottest part of a fire. Would still like to think I'm a hotshot, like I wear a hotshot belt buckle every day. My hotshot belt buckles are the one thing that I hope my daughter gets when I'm no longer walking around on this earth. Belt buckles are part of hotshot culture. They're only awarded to hotshots who have finished two or three seasons. When Mayfield looks at them sitting on a shelf at home in Bozeman, Montana, it's with a mix of emotions. It's the most gratifying job I'll ever have, but it's also a job that made me contemplate suicide and think that my family was better off with a life insurance check than, than being around due to what turned into to seasonal depression. Mayfield says several factors made life difficult, including low wages that were a strain on his family. But much of his anguish emerged in the sudden quiet of the offseason when he faced anxiety attacks. Those things became more and more common if I wasn't on a fire, if I wasn't in some kind of high-tempo operational setting. Like, I don't know. It was messed up. Mental health struggles are a huge occupational hazard of wildland firefighting. It's dangerous work, and it's hard to maintain the emotional support of friends and family. You're away for weeks at a time, often in places where you don't have phone service. Ben Elkind in Portland, Oregon, knows this experience. I mean, it's really tough. I mean, this year, coming back from a couple of different fire assignments, you know, I've got a, a kid that he just turned one. I mean, he didn't even recognize me after being gone for, you know, 20 days or so. Elkine just finished his 14th season as a wildland firefighter. He says having a family and a home to return to makes it easier to transition to the off-season. But many others suddenly lose the bond of their fellow firefighters. Everybody just kind of like scatters, you know, and, and so it's difficult mentally to flip that switch and, and then to figure out what you're supposed to do next. That's something that Taylor Hess is dealing with back home in Missoula, Montana. It's that odd time between seasons. All the leaves have fallen off the trees, but without any snow on the ground, it's not ski season either. It's so hard to go from everything to nothing all at once, and so it's really important to have something to look forward to every day. 
Um, because otherwise, it's like, well, I have nothing going on today, so why would I even, like, get out of bed? Each day, Hess takes this leaf-strewn walk from her house to the gym to lift weights. She started to see it as a way to handle stress in 2017, right after her first wildfire season. She'd been on a fire where a firefighter had died. Afterwards, she had to jump right into her senior year of college. It was a lot of, like, pressure to still be like kind of with it, but it was really, really hard to like find time to focus and get in a rhythm where things were okay. It just felt like chaos. At the time, Hess had access to counseling through Michigan State University, and that helped her make sense of things. But Hess is no longer a student, so she has a lot less access to mental health services. That's because health insurance for all contract wildland firefighters like her runs out shortly after the season ends. There's a lot of lingering um, like mental health issues, not just for me, but for so many people. Help may be on the way for Hess, Ben Elkind, and their fellow firefighters. The new federal infrastructure package calls for creating mental health programs for them. Advocates say that's a step in the right direction. Now they're rooting for another broad piece of legislation, Tim Hart's bill. It includes much more specific plans to address mental health and would fund them permanently. The bill is named after a smoke jumper from Wyoming who died on a fire in New Mexico. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Maggie Mullen. Our series from the Mountain West News Bureau, Silent Season, continues tomorrow with a report on a big pay boost coming to firefighters thanks to the federal infrastructure law. You can find more reporting from the Mountain West News Bureau at our website, KUNC.org. That's our show for today. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman and Tess Novotny. Our digital editor is Jackie High. Brian Larson is our executive producer. And I want to take a moment to say farewell to our amazing producers, Ray Solomon and Alana Schreiber, who are leaving the co-ed team this week. Their contributions have been such an essential part of this show. We're excited to hear what they do next. I'm Erin O'Toole. Thank you so much for listening. It's Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.